Hi, St. John's. For this week's podcast, we decided to feature one of our favorite recent sermons. We hope you enjoy. So I want to start off by just acknowledging what a text. I mean, holy cow. Um, so I found out I was coming here to St. John's. I'm like, great. I only get to come over there like once every two months. Like, what do I get to talk to him about? And I start reading through it. I'm like, oh. Like, I, I also grew up at a, a church where um, after the readings, we always said, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And there's texts like this where you're like, That's, this is the word of the Lord? Um, thanks be to God. Oh, man. Okay. Um, yeah, I just, I love to picture when they first receive this letter. Um, so we believe, you know, James, the brother of Jesus, um, sent this letter out to Christian churches all over the place in the early church. And I just imagine they're like gathering around, talking about Jesus. Like, guys, there's great news. We got a letter from James. This is awesome. And they like grab it like, all right, you read it. And they're like reading through it and their smiles just fading. Oh, oh wow. Shifting around, getting uncomfortable. Um, this is a hard text. This is, this is poignant. This is James just going after it. Um, and it's captivating. It's uncomfortable. Um, but for James, it's clearly important because if it wasn't important, James would not have felt the need to address this. Um, because throughout the book of James, James frequently refers to those that he's writing to, which are early Christians, as brothers or brothers and sisters. Dear bro- beloved brothers and sisters, you know, this, this, this. So clearly he loves the people he's writing to and he cares about them. And so it's in that context of love that he, he feels the need to so sharply call out some things that he's seeing, and to redirect the early Christians. And so, for us, as we look at this, this is going to be something that can be convicting, but is ultimately done in a place of love, that, that James and God wants to speak to us in a place that ultimately is for our betterment. And that's why he's saying these harsh words. That's why he's addressing this. So what I hope to do today is I hope to, to kind of look at what is James after? What is he trying to get out of this? Um, how do we understand wealth, possessions, um, money in general. I'll just refine our thinking about that a little bit. Um, where does this come from? And then ultimately, what do true riches look like? What ultimately is, um, are those things that we should be striving after? And so that's what I, I hope to capture today as we reflect on these very difficult words from James. So okay, we're going to start out here. This is verse one again. Um, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Love you guys. <laughs> Um, yeah, like I said, he, he just goes right at it. He goes from like beloved brothers and sisters to come now, you rich. Like it's, it's supposed to wake you up. Like if you were falling asleep during this part of the letter, it's like, okay, what, what is he saying? Um, I'm awake. I'm listening. Now, what I want to point out right away is he's addressing specific people in a time and place. So this is where we believe that scripture is, is for Christians of all times, but it's also written in a specific context. There are things happening that James has in mind. And so this is written divinely through God, but also through a human author. And so what we're going to see in this letter is that there are some specificities to it. There are certain things that James is specifically seeing in his day and age that he wants to call out. And there's also some general truths that we can take away from it too. So just for example, one of the specific things that he sees, I'm going to actually jump forward three verses, is in chapter, or verse four, he highlights something that he sees going on that he does not like. He says this in James 5, 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
So James is actually seeing something happen specifically. He is seeing um, those with wealth and possessions. It doesn't mean everybody, but there are some who are hiring people to do work in their fields. So they're hiring these day laborers who are probably much more poor, much more dependent upon this. And by whatever technicalities or just the fact that they feel like they can, they're holding back the right wages that they owe these people. So they're people who are hiring others, they're receiving services and then not compensating as probably agreed upon, as promised, whatever was right. And so James is just saying this is not okay, right? As, as Christians, as people who have been given much, you can't just be holding it back from others. You can't be essentially robbing them of their due, right? They have offered the service in exchange for compensation. You owe them this compensation. Now, this is not something that was new, um, nor is it something that has completely ever gone away. Um, there's always a temptation um, when we are in a position of power or influence to abuse that, to hang on to it. So if I have possessions, I have wealth, and I owe somebody something, um, I have the power because it's currently in my possession. I don't have to necessarily hand it over right away, right? I, I'm the one who has to facilitate this transaction ultimately. Um, this is something God was keenly aware of. So if you go all the way back um, to the people of God, the people of Israel, and you look at um, when God is bringing them into the promised land, he gives them all of these laws, right? All of these rules that are meant to help them understand what does it look like to live as one of God's people in this new land that I'm giving to you. And this very topic was something that God was already aware of back then. So if you look at Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is Moses' last kind of sermon or speech to the people of God before they enter the promised land. And he tells them this, he says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it lest he cries out against you, against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. So all the way back then, Moses was worried that there are going to be times when people are going to hire somebody, and their wages, they're going to, for whatever reason, hold them back, right? Maybe it's like, hey, I don't know if you really did enough work, so I'm going to have to calculate. I'll get back to you on how much we owe you. Um, oh, I don't know if you really did the job fully. And so Moses made it a law right away. God through Moses when you hire somebody, you have to pay them right away. You can't sit around and sit on this money and get around to it or hold it back from them. And what's the thing that Moses highlights? It's because they count on it, right? You have all of these possessions, so it's really easy for you to have, you know, take your time. But for that person right there that you've hired, you owe this to them, and they're, they need that to live. There's this huge concern for those who have very little. Because Moses and God realizes how easy it is just to kind of run them right over. They don't have any influence. Who's going to listen to them? Who cares, right? And so Moses says, don't withhold their wages. James says, don't withhold wages, right? If you have possessions and you owe them to somebody, you owe it to them, right? So don't abuse the fact that it's currently in your possession. Don't abuse the fact that you have all the power in the situation. And one thing I want to highlight from both of these passages, both, both here in James 5, this last section right here, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And then in Deuteronomy, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, is there's this repeated theme in Scripture about crying out to God and specifically connected to injustice. That whenever there's an injustice that takes place, God sees it and he hears it. It does not fall on deaf ears. You look at, again, the people of Israel, when they're coming out of slavery, um, it, it, we are told that the cries of the people went to God, and it's hearing those cries that ultimately he, he leads them into deliverance. 
You go even further back. You go to Cain and Abel, right? One of the, the more well-known stories in the Bible. So you have the first two children on earth, and Cain kills his brother Abel, right? Murders him out of jealousy. And what we're told then is, is God comes to Cain. He says, hey, where's your brother Abel, right? He knows. Uh, but he asks him, where's your brother Abel? And Cain, you know, famously says, what am I, my brother's keeper? Like, I don't know. Go ask somebody else. Um, that's a paraphrase, but um, don't check that. Um, no, that's, that's the gist of what he says. Basically, it's not my responsibility. But then God says this in Genesis 4.10. He says, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The voice of his blood is crying to me. And so, throughout Scripture, we see that injustice does not go unnoticed by God. Now, in some ways, this is a warning to us because there are some times that we think that what we do in the shadows is okay, right? If, if nobody knows, nobody will think anything less of me. Nobody's even going to notice. Nobody cares. So I'm going to, whatever it might be, abuse my power, I might sin in some way. And so there's a warning. <laughs> when you think nobody sees that or hears that, God sees it and God hears it, right? The goal is not to get life, get through life without getting caught, <laughs> The goal of life is to live according to God's will. So there's a warning, but there's also a comfort. Because in this world, we live in a fallen world that at this present time, there's tons of injustice, right? Injustice on all sorts of scales, on, on large scales against whole peoples, whole nations. There are injustices in small scales in our own lives. And sometimes it feels like nobody sees or hears what we're going through. Nobody sees this injustice. We were listening to a comedian. He was talking about one night he was driving home and... He was driving down the road, and a, a driver who had been drinking and driving ran a stop sign and T-boned him at 50 miles an hour. Wrecked both of their cars, right? So they're in, like, the ditch, and a police officer comes and, you know, checks on them and um, ultimately does an accident report. Now, the police officer, he's filling out the report, and he accidentally, at one point, has to check who's responsible for the accident, which party, and he checks the wrong person. He checks that the comedian was responsible. This is the way that he tells the story. And so he doesn't realize this right away, the comedian, until he gets the bill for both of the car's insurances that he's responsible for this accident he has to pay. And he says, no, 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 I was, I was innocent. It was that guy. He was, he was drinking and he's the one who ran the stop sign. And he goes to the police officer and just this one police officer just dismissed him. Was kind of like, hey man, like whatever, just pay the bill. It doesn't matter. He says, no, that's not fair. I was innocent. I got hit. And so he goes to lawyers, but there's no lawyer who sees enough money to be made in this case, and so they don't really give him the time of day, and so they don't really take it up. And so he talks about how he just feels like he's screaming to the void, like, this has happened and nobody seems to care. And the promise of God is that when we cry out, we're not yelling to the void. That there is actually a loving God in control who actually hears those cries, who actually sees that injustice and does not leave it unnoticed or dismissed. And so there's a great comfort that in this life, we might experience all sorts of issues. And there might be all sorts of times where it's like, does nobody see this? And we have confidence that God sees it. And, and in this life, it might not be set right, but we have promises that when Jesus returns, everything will be set right. Those injustices will not go unredeemed. And so there's a great comfort and a great warning in the fact that these cries go to God, that he sees it. Even, even when we don't cry out, when we suffer, God sees it. He hears it. Now, going back to James, um, these are the last words of this section from James in verses 5 and 6. Again, he, he's talking about what he's seeing with the rich Christians of his day, one of these concerns he has. 
And so he says this, he says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So this is a bit of the crux of what James is worried about, is he sees these Christians who have been given a lot of wealth, who are ultimately living lives of just luxury and self-indulgence. That that's kind of their purpose. That's their motive. That's how they're using what they've been given um, just to live for themselves. What sounds good to me? What sounds fun? And then he uses this very poignant language where he says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, right? It makes me think of Hansel and Gretel. If you know that old fairy tale where um, the witch feeds Hansel to try and fatten him up so she can eat him, right? Like, oh, doesn't this taste good? Yeah, like, that's right. This self-indulgence, James says, is actually just fattening your heart as if you're going to get slaughtered. It's not strong. It's not healthy. This is not good. And, and he says here, um, it's in this day of slaughter. So there's this, this end time that's coming. And so we're going to go back to verses 2 and 3. And this is kind of the, the central idea in James's passage. It says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So one of the things that James is hitting on is that you don't know how much time you have, but we do know that however much time we have is temporary, right? So he's saying these are the last days. As Christians, we believe we're living in the last days. Jesus says nobody knows when he's going to return, right? Could be middle of the night, um, nobody's aware, right? You can't predict it. You don't know when it's coming. But we do know that at some point, this earthly life will end. Either we're going to die at some point, could be unexpected, could be a little expected, or it could be that Jesus returns. But at any point, we are in the last days. There's not much time. And he's saying that the riches that people have invested in are riches that are ultimately going to rot. They're going to corrode. They're going to wear out. They're not lasting, right? Like how silly for such a short period of time to pour everything into investing in that little glimpse. It would be like, this is just a, an analogy I was thinking of the other day, so forgive the, the shortcomings of it, but imagine I was like stranded in the mountains, my legs like caught in a rock or something, and let's say I know like there's no chance of me living, okay? I know I'm going to die, and I pull out my phone and I have service, but it's low battery, and it could die at any moment now, right? There's a lot of things I could do with those last moments. I don't know how much battery I have. I could call loved ones, tell them what they mean to me. I could write something that could hopefully be a blessing to others, you would be right to criticize me if I decided, you know what, there's this really fun phone app I saw an advertisement for, and I'm just going to play that until my phone dies. This is one way to go out, right? right? I just want to have fun. I just want to have pleasure. And so James is saying, we're in the last days. We don't know how much time we have. And so to pour everything into to this short time, it's ultimately going to corrode. And he actually says that it's going to be evidence against you, right? The fact that you've poured so much into this and not thought about the bigger picture, the true riches of life, not thought about God in any of this, is going to be its own condemnation against you. The fact that you've poured into your clothes, your living, your self-indulgence, all of that. And so there's a very stern warning here. Now, um, a couple months ago, uh, my wife and I and our son went to the Denver Art Museum. There was an exhibit there that I was really excited about. I don't know much about art, so don't ask me about brushstrokes or styles. Like, I don't know. But I really like looking at art. I really like um, reflecting on it and just appreciating it. And um, this exhibit that I wanted to go to, it was kind of, it was Flemish art, which is apparently like southern modern Belgium. Again, I'm not an art expert. Um, 
but it was from like the 1500s to the 1700s. And when you walked in, right away there was this giant painting. And I'm talking like six feet tall, nine feet wide by a guy named Fran Snyders. And it's just jarring because it's so big. I mean, it's literally like if this was just a big painting somebody had put together. Um, and the painting is breathtaking. It's full of color and detail. There's, there's so much to look at. And the painting is called A Pantry with Game. And it depicts um, a 1600s pantry. And in this pantry, there's all sorts of um, dead game. So you have a deer carcass. You have some pheasants. Um, I think there might have been a goat. Um, there's some fox on the walls. There's like almost like a dozen dead animals. And part of what um, France was trying to convey was the brevity of life because you quickly realize that all of those animals were alive one point that same day before they were ultimately killed and slaughtered. And so time is so short, right? You're looking at the mortality of this life. But then as you look more and more, there's even more to see. And eventually what you'll find is on the far left of the picture, there are two dogs standing there. They're shoulder to shoulder, side by side. One of the dogs is looking at all of the game, <laughs> right? That's a feast. <laughs> you think about a dog, and you have a deer, and you have fox, and you have birds. Like, oh my gosh, you, you just gorge on that stuff. It's amazing. And so this one dog is just fixated on it. Like, it looks so good. But then there's a dog next to him. And that dog is looking up at a parrot. And the parrot was a stand-in for paradise. But ultimately, there was something higher and better than just this self-indulgent game, what can I get out of right now, to be looked at. And the general message of the painting was, time is limited, right? These animals were alive today and dead same day. What are you going to focus on? Are you going to focus on what I, can I get out and indulge in all of this? Or are you going to focus on paradise, focus on what has been given by God? At one point, Jesus is telling a parable about a dishonest manager, and he concludes it with this kind of takeaway. So this is in Luke chapter 16. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve them both. It's a dichotomy, right? You can't serve two masters. So either your service is to God or your service is to Money. That's Jesus' point right there. And he, and he drives this home. And over and over again, what he's worried about is what are you serving, right? Not, not necessarily what you have, but where is your heart in all of this? And so James and Jesus want us to see that anything, even those things that seem like blessings, can be a curse if it leads us to trust God less. Things that we'd say, oh, well, what a blessing. Yeah, but if it leads you away from God, if it leads you away from trusting in Jesus— that's not a blessing because it's taking your eyes away from the most important paradise, the most important prize, the true treasure. This is an analogy that I've sometimes described it as um, that I find helpful. Um, so as you're going through life, I, I kind of picture you're, you're kind of on a tightrope and there's all sorts of winds that are going to toss you to and fro from life. And, and when you are baptized into the church, when you come to believe Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's like Jesus comes down and grabs you by the hand right? Now, you can't really see him, but he's holding on to you. He's got you. And so sometimes, you know, the winds are going to blow, and it feels like you're going to fall, but Jesus will never let you go because you know that he's going to ultimately take you to the end, okay? So that's, that's good. Jesus is holding on. However, when we have financial security in this life, when we are given earthly riches, blessings, even relationships, 
um, it's kind of like a handrail shows up, right? Now, the handrail is nice because you can see it, and you kind of know what to expect from it, because up here, like, I have no idea how I'm going to still stay on when I'm bent like this, but this handrail, this feels pretty sturdy. Now, it's fine that you, there's a handrail there. It's fine that God has given you these earthly blessings, but if at any point you're tempted to let go so you can grab the handrail, that's not good. Because that handrail can't take you through all the tragedies of life. That handrail can't ultimately take you through death into a new life. And so James is worried first and foremost about the hearts of his people. Like I said, this is all in the context of love. He's willing to be so stern and so strong with the people he's writing to because he doesn't want them for a second to let go of that hand. He doesn't want them for a second to stop looking at paradise and start looking at all of the self-indulgent riches of this world. I just want to real quickly say, Scripture at no point ever condemns having possessions. If you look at some of the holiest people in Scripture, a lot of them actually have quite a bit of earthly wealth. So you have Abraham, has a whole big clan and family. He has a lot of stuff. Um, you look at Job, who's considered one of the most righteous people in all of Scripture. He starts the book of Job with a lot of stuff. He ends it with double the stuff. So he's got possessions. King David, man after God's own heart, has a lot of possessions. He's a king. Solomon, the wisest man ever, has a lot of possessions. So it's not inherently evil to have possessions, to have wealth, okay? And likewise, it's not inherently holy to have nothing. Poverty is not a virtue, per se. Um, in fact, Jesus at one point tells a parable about three, three servants, and they're given different amount of talents, different amount of money, while the master is away. And the one who's ultimately condemned in that story is actually the one who has the least amount, because the two who were given more actually used what they were given for the blessing of the master and the blessing of those around them, and it's the one with the least amount who actually hoards it all. So this is not to say rich, bad, poor, good, clean cut. Right? Possessions are not inherently evil. But don't miss James's warning. And it's a warning throughout Scripture that wealth and possessions are a tempting handrail. They are a seductive idol. The reason why Scripture talks about money so much is because it is one of the easiest things to lose sight of God for and start grabbing onto. And so we can hold these both in the same hand. One, possessions are not inherently evil, but just be warned. When God blesses you with anything, whether it be money, whether it be power, whether it be relationships, um, whether it be some sort of status or position, some sort of a title, that is a blessing until it allows us to take our eyes off of God. And, it is, and all of those can be so tempting to put our trust in. So it's a, it's a reminder to be wary, to be on guard, to take some honest, hard self-reflection. Is this an idol for me? Is this something that I'm putting my hope and trust in? Or am I receiving this as a gift to be used? And ultimately, that's when we think about possessions. What, what they are for is to be used. So you ask, where do these come from and what are they for? Um, at one point, Martin Luther in the small catechism is explaining to Christians what it means to believe um, the Apostles' Creed. So to believe, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And in this section where he's talking about what does it mean to believe that Jesus, or not, not Jesus, that God the Father Almighty is maker of heaven and earth. And he says this, to believe that God is creator is to believe that God has created me together with all that exists. God has given me and still preserves my body and soul eyes, ears, and all limbs and senses, reason, and all mental faculties. In addition, God daily and abundantly provides shoes and clothing, food and drink, 
house and farm, spouse and children, field, livestock, and all property, along with all the necessities and nourishment for this body and life. So what he's saying is to believe that God is creator is to believe that everything we have is ultimately a gift. It is really easy to think that we are entitled to things, to think, well, I deserve this, right? Now, on one scale, right, we can say, I worked hard for something. The right thing to do is to compensate. But what, what this points out is even our mental faculties, we read, even our, our physical ability, our limbs, that we can do a, do a job, that we can work, is all a gift. And so Christians see everything we receive as having come directly from the hand of God. No matter what means it might have actually taken, that it's ultimately a gift from God. And so if it's a gift, it's, it's not something we're entitled to. It's not something that I deserve. It's not something that I have the right to. It is something that's like, wow, by no merit of my own, this was just given? Wow. And then Luther concludes this section by talking about why did God give me this? He says this, And all this is done out of pure fatherly and divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness of mine at all. For all this, I owe it to God to thank and praise, serve and obey him. This is most certainly true. So all of it, why, why has God given you the life he's given you? Why has he given you the relationships? Why has he given you um, the job? Why has he given you the finances, the, the house, all of it? Because he loves you. That's it. Out of his own mercy, nothing you did. He just said, you know what? I want you to have this because I care for you as my child. It's my daughter, it's my son, I want you to have this. And then what are we supposed to do with it? To, for all of this, I owe it to God I, to thank and praise, to acknowledge this is not what I earned, this is what God has given me, and then serve and obey him. Because ultimately, that's what this comes down to. God has trusted you. When you receive something, God has said, you know what, I trust that you're going to use this to love other people and to love me. I want to care for you, I need to obviously take care of your needs, and I also want you to use it to bless those around you. And so, ultimately, we're managing what isn't ours. This is God's, and we just get to be his spokesperson and say, all right, how can I use this to bless others? How can I use this to help those who have very little? How can I use this to bless his church, his ministry? Whatever it might be. In that same parable of that dishonest manager we read um, from Jesus, you can't serve two masters, right before that he says this when it comes to um, being faithful with what we've been given in this life, he says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is in others, who will give you that which is your own? So brothers and sisters, I want us to understand that everything that we have has been entrusted to us from God, and we use it as he would want it to be used. Right, that's question number one. Wow, God, you just gave me this gift. What should I do with it? All right, how would God want me to use this? I'll tell you, this is just one example. This is one person. I know somebody. This is his thinking. He told me um, he has six kids, okay? Big family. And he said, I would be lying to you if I, if I told you I gave more to my church than I spend on food for my kids, right? Inflation, it's crazy, right? So it's, he has to buy a lot of food to care for his family. He believes God has called me to provide food for them. But he says, I refuse to spend more on my own pleasures than I give to ministry or service. Because that's what I value. That's what I believe God wants me to do with my possessions. And so when he looks at his budget, he makes sure that that is always the case. Right? He asks himself, how would God want me to use what I've been given? If this is his, if he's trusted me, how can I honor 
and show him that this is, you've trusted rightly, that I'm going to be honorable with this. And this is one of the beautiful things, is you don't have to have a lot of possessions to be faithful to what you've been given. Right? We just read, he who's faithful with little will be faithful with much. You don't have to have a lot. It's not like, all right, if you can get above a certain price point, then you can be a blessing to others. You can be a blessing with very little, right? That doesn't mean you're always writing a big check. But the question, no matter big or little, is how can I use whatever I've been given, how much I've been trusted to honor God and to love other people? Sometimes we we fall into the trap of thinking, all right, I'm going to kind of take care of myself all the way. Like, I'm going to make sure that I'm set and I, I feel good about everything and then hopefully I'll earn enough that then I can go and be a blessing to others. Then I can be generous once I get to that point. <laughs> but you don't need to have a lot to be generous, right? At one point, there's a woman who is next to nothing and she gives basically two pennies. That's, that's generous right there. So whatever we have, it's entrusted to us and we use it as God would want us to use it. Now, if you're like me, you read James's letter here and <laughs> you get convicted, all right? Because I pretty quickly realize I have frequently failed to use what's been given to me in a way that's honoring God or loving others. I frequently look at something like, oh, what can I do with this? Instead of, what does God want me to do with this? And that's when we're reminded of the true riches, right? Because I'm quickly confronted with the fact that I have fallen so short. There have been so many times God says, PJ, I trust you with this. And I'm like, thanks, <laughs> I'll take that, you know? And so we, we come to God as sinners who have wasted what he's given us, as people who have just used it for self-indulgence too often. And he reminds us that ultimately when we look to him, we don't stand as one on our own account, on our own merit, but on the merit of the one who actually gave everything he had. The one who gave everything so we might have everything. Because God sent his son Jesus to this earth, and you think about Jesus, he's, he's at God's right hand, Right? man, there's, there's no problems. Everything's perfect. Whatever you want, like it's, it's great. And he sees us broken, fumbling around, selfish and sinful, and he says, you know what? I'm going to go down there and rescue those people because they can't rescue themselves. And so Jesus leaves it all behind, right? Son of God, eternal, immortal being comes down to earth as a human who can get spat at, who can get pierced with nails, and ultimately he dies on a cross and he bears the sins of all of us. All of our selfish greed, all of our self-indulgence, nailed to him on the cross. And three days later, he rose from the grave and at that point showed the whole world that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And that anyone believing in his name would belong to him, would become children of God. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Because ultimately, like I said, that that handrail is going to run out. Because death is coming. Our own inward selfishness is going to ultimately implode on itself. And we deserve nothing but eternal damnation for it all. God said, I gave you all of this and you just used it for yourself. And yet, Jesus came, and instead of hoarding, instead of using it for himself, he gave everything he had, ultimately giving his life. In doing so, he became poor by every definition of the word so that you and I, belonging to him, might become rich. Rich in what really matters. 
We receive this a lot of ways, and one of the, the, for a lot of us, the first places that we are given this promise is when we are baptized. And so throughout Scripture, um, Scripture repeatedly talks about baptism being brought into God's family. So, for instance, in Romans, Paul says that when you are baptized, you are baptized into Jesus' death and resurrection. That same death that redeemed us and that same resurrection that won victory, that's yours now. In Galatians, Paul says you are actually baptized into Christ himself. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says you are baptized into the body of Christ, into his people. So when that water was poured on you, when those words were spoken, that was God promising you are now my son, you are now my daughter. And that is great news. Because you think about it, right? What happens when you're the son or the daughter of the king? Everything that's his is yours. Eternity, bliss, joy, So being baptized into the people of God, we now have an inheritance that will never perish or diminish because all of the earthly riches, they will at one point go away, right? But we're looking forward to a time when Jesus returns, right? That that day, those last days, we're we're looking forward to when Jesus returns and at that point, Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. But those who trust in Jesus, eternity. No more injustice, right? No more crying out, look what has happened to me. Justice reigns supreme. Peace. There's no more violence. There's no more wars. Relationships that feel like they are beyond repair never again will fracture. We will never have need. We'll never have want. We will bask in the glory and the presence of Jesus and be with his people. These are true riches. These are riches that will last. And what James wants us to do is never lose sight of that, which is why he's so strong. Because he knows it is so enticing to take our eyes off paradise, take eyes off of what is to come, and look at the here and now. What can I get out of this life? And I want to be very clear. It's not that you can't do anything fun. This is, <laughs> this is not like your life has to be miserable. But to realize that there are some, there's something greater than just the indulgences of this life, the luxury of this life. We're, we've been entrusted as stewards. How can I use this? If God could tell me what to do with this? What would he say? Because he's given you riches far beyond anything this world can offer. And so to drive this home, I want to just share this passage from Matthew 13. This is a very short parable by Jesus when he's talking about this kingdom that has been given to you, this kingdom that you've been baptized into that we'll see the fullness of on that last day. Jesus says this. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has Buys that field. Brothers and sisters, these riches are worth more than anything. They're worth everything. May we keep our eyes fixed on that, never letting them, allowing them to wander, never letting go, focused on Jesus, what he's given us, and how we can use what we've been given to honor him. May that be our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.